this book of Daniel that we're introducing to you today, which is a very thrilling book, and it's a book that definitely features the sovereign movement of God. What I want to show you in scripture reading today are those who were heathens who recognized the sovereignty of God. So I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 2. I want to point out verses 46 and 47 because this is the admission of Nebuchadnezzar who was a heathen king who at that time was dominating the nation Israel. We read from Daniel chapter 2 verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. I want you to flip over to chapter 3 if you would. Again, this is Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement beginning at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. I want you to go to chapter 4, if you would please. Nebuchadnezzar again, verses 1 to 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are the signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now this is the admission about God of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a heathen king. I want you to flip over to chapter 6. And now you see Darius. Darius is a Mede who's been put in charge of the world after the Medes and Persians took it over from the Babylonians. And in Daniel chapter 6, I want you to notice verse 26. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 26. I make a decree. This is Darius speaking. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Now I want you to go to one New Testament text, if you would please. It's Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And this is a very important verse of scripture. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Now this is a passage of scripture that's dealing with future things that will happen to the nation Israel. And we'll be discussing them in great detail as we go on through a journey through this book. But in verse 15, here's what Jesus says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The only Old Testament book that Jesus Christ singles out and says, let the reader understand. As if saying, this is not going to be simplistic to understand. There's going to be great study required. There's going to be great analysis so that we can come to proper understanding of it. That's the implication of the statement, is the book of Daniel. But before we begin our journey, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word and those who have come out to partake of it. We pray your blessing on this morning time. We pray that you would whet an appetite for this thrilling book that we're about to begin. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. 
John Calvin, the famed reformer, was originally from France, but he spent many years in Geneva, Switzerland. After he had been gone from France for about 26 years, he became burdened for the French people. He decided that he was going to select a book of the Bible and write a commentary and send it to France to try to motivate those people to serve the Lord. He chose as the book that he would do that, the book of Daniel. He said the reason why he selected the book of Daniel was because it was a book that could cause the believer to reach the goal of glorifying God regardless of the obstacle. There's absolutely no doubt that the book of Daniel is one of the most important books in all of the Bible. In fact, as one writer said, it is one of the most thrilling books in all of the Bible. But if you're honest with it, it is also one of the most difficult books in all of the Bible. In fact, this is the only Old Testament book that Jesus Christ says, let the reader understand. Some of the stories in the book of Daniel are very famous, and they're not too hard to understand. The story of Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fire. Those are important stories to be certain, or God wouldn't have put them in his word. But when you look through the book of Daniel and realize that there are 357 verses in the book of Daniel, and only 51 deal with those two stories, what we realize is that 86% of the book of Daniel have to do more than with just those two stories. So we need the wisdom of God to understand the book of Daniel. Now, as is our habit, when we begin a new book, I like to ask and answer certain questions so that we can get a handle on where we're going. I'd like to ask and answer six of them for you today. First of all, why study the book of Daniel? The first reason that I always give to any book that belongs in the Bible is we study it because it is a book of the Bible. God has given us 66 precious books, and those are the books he wants us to know. Those are the books he wants us to understand. Daniel meets the criteria for a book as belonging in the Bible in both the Greek canonical scripture and the Hebrew canonical scripture. A biblical scholar of the 1800s named Ernst Henstenberg said that this book of Daniel belongs in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament canon. It was acknowledged by the church councils as belonging in the Bible. It is a book that bears the testimony of Jesus Christ. It was quoted by the apostles. It is a book that has peculiar style and revelatory data that you will not find anywhere else. And he said, because Ezekiel, God's prophet, sanctioned Daniel as a key man of God. There was a 2nd century B.C. manuscript of Daniel found in the Qumran cave number one in the famous Dead Sea Scroll find that indicates that those Jewish believers protected and preserved that book. In fact, Jewish believers have always relied upon the book of Daniel as they eagerly await for the signs of the coming Messiah. Now, in our English Bibles, as well as in the Septuagint, which is the great translation of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel sits as the 27th book of the Old Testament. However, in the Masoretic text, which is a vowel-pointed Hebrew text of the Old Testament written about three to 400 years after Jesus Christ, Daniel sits as the 35th book. It's classified as belonging in the writings. But whether or not you take the Greek Septuagint or the English Bible or you take the Hebrew Bible, the truth of the matter is Daniel shows up in the Bible. It is one of God's inspired books, and therefore we're going to study it. A second reason why we study the book of Daniel is because Daniel is a book that emphasizes the sovereignty of God over political powers and people. There are two main Old Testament books that really drive home the theme of the sovereignty of God. One of them is the book of Esther, and the other one is the book of Daniel. Now, the big difference is this. In Esther, God's sovereignty is secretly silent, but not in Daniel. In Daniel, God's sovereignty is strongly stated. In fact, one verse is considered to be a thematic verse of the book of Daniel. It is Daniel 4.17, which says, In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. No matter 
who the power, no matter what the power, God establishes the power. And it is God who takes claim for establishing and disposing people and power to serve his purposes. That very purpose is something that Nebuchadnezzar came to personally understand. Nebuchadnezzar came to understand that God does according to his will in the political powers of the world. This theme runs throughout the entire book of Daniel and throughout the entire universe. Make no mistake about this. The promotion, the fortune, the movements of leaders are all subject to the sovereign decrees and edicts of Almighty God. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the selection of a president of the United States or the selection of a pope. It does not matter if you're talking about local officials, state officials, or national level politicians. They all function under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. After an election, many people usually get together because they worked hard for their candidate and to get their candidate elected. And many people get together and usually they cry, we did it, we did it. And they slap each other on the back. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll discover it was God who did it. It was God who takes credit for putting political powers. They're not controlled by people. They're not controlled by democracies. They're controlled by God. World powers are not running out of control. They're running in his control. And we need a book of Daniel that brings that back into focus. God's people should not be running around in some emotional frenzy just because their candidate loses. God's people should realize that we can be calm and confident no matter what is happening because Almighty God is ruling over the affairs of men. And it is Daniel that promotes this exciting theme. And if you are here today and happen to be in a position of leadership, I want you to understand something. You didn't get that position of leadership because you were so great or smart or because you had what it took or because you are so educated. You got that promotion from God. God has given you responsibilities and Daniel will drive that theme home to you. Now there's a third reason why we study it. It's because Daniel is a book that proves one can be righteous and godly and mightily used by God in the midst of heathen environments. Daniel is a tremendous example of one who was godly in the midst of a godless world. In his personal, private, and public life, he radiated faithfulness. He was such a faithful man that the prophet Ezekiel, his contemporary, ranked him in the same level as he did with Noah and Job as a paragon of piety. Daniel was so wise that God himself used Daniel as an example to the king of Tyre and said, there's a wise man, it is Daniel. He was so faithful to God that three times in the book of Daniel, it is stated that Daniel is highly esteemed by Almighty God. Marv Rosenthal, who wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel, said that there are only two major personalities about whom nothing negative is ever said. One is Joseph and the other is Daniel. Now the truth is, Daniel was a deportee who could have moved away from God because God allowed some bad things to happen to him. He was taken from his home. He was taken from his country. He had been forced to move to a godless and idolatrous city, Babylon. He was about 16 or 17 years old when all of that stuff happened to him when he was departed. And when you're a 16 or 17-year-old, you 16 and 17-year-olds know that passions begin to run wild. So here's Daniel removed to this godless land, taken out of his home, but he never flinched. He and his three friends were righteous men and God used them in powerful ways in a moral world that was evil. And Daniel was so mightily used of God that he ended up holding high positions in both the Babylonian and Persian worlds. His righteousness literally did influence nations. He would not bend, he would not bow to the pressures of any evil act. And we will see that a major key to this man's godliness was his prayer life. Daniel had an intense, persistent, personal prayer life Three times a day, he would open his window toward Jerusalem and he would give thanks to God. 
He also had a passion to know the Word of God. And it says in Daniel that he wanted to know things precisely. He wanted to know exact meanings and precise interpretation. Those two qualities, a man who wanted to know the Word and a man who was a man of prayer, produced this godly man in a godless world. Dr. Renald Schauer said, we're living in a world of man-centered mania. We let murderers go free. We promote perverted sex. We're a world of adultery and materialism and astrology and fame and power. He said, what we need in this world are Daniels. We need people who will rise up and stand for God just like Daniel did. We need prayer warriors. We need righteous people of faith who really want to precisely know and understand the word of God in their homes, in their schools, on their jobs, in their relationships. We need Daniels. And you may be one here today who's been hit with a string of negatives. You may be having one problem after another, one setback after another, one hardship after another, and you wonder, why did God let all of this stuff happen to me? Well, you follow the pattern of Daniel. Don't you flinch. You stay faithful to God. Don't waver and watch what God will ultimately do. He mightily works in situations and circumstances like that, like he did with Daniel. The fourth reason why we study it is because Daniel is a book that shows God's love for and protection of Israel. If you miss this point, that this book shows God's love and protection for the nation Israel, you'll wind up making weird interpretations of the book of Daniel. For example, there are a group of old Dutch Protestants who said Daniel describes the Roman papal hierarchy and Catholic persecution. And then you have Catholic interpreters who say the book of Daniel describes the attacks of the Mohammedans. And then you have other Protestants saying it describes persecution of the church. This describes none of that. It's a book that has to do with Israel. And Daniel was a bright source of light in a very dark world at a time when Israel needed some encouragement. It was Harry Baltima who said night had fallen on Israel. And Daniel became a book of twinkling stars. Because as Israel began to look into the pages of Daniel, she began to get some hope. And I can guarantee you this, Satan hates the book of Daniel. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said two Old Testament books have been the special object of satanic attack. One is Isaiah and the other is the book of Daniel. There have been some terrible things that have happened to the nation Israel at the hand of Gentile powers. Israel has never known what it is like to be independent and free. She has never known what it's like to be in a promised land free from threat and fear. But God has not forgotten his nation and he has not forsaken his nation. God is faithful to his nation and he will bring these people to divine blessing. Daniel says God will deliver Israel and bring her to a millennium that will feature great joy and peace as Israel will live safely in her land. But remember this, at the time Daniel predicted these things, Israel was being dominated by Gentile powers. And if you looked at Israel and what was going on against her, you would say it's almost lo-ami, not God's people. But she was God's people. And the book of Daniel put a spark back into the nation Israel to realize we're the people of God and God will ultimately cause us to reign. This is a fabulous book for Jewish people. And it shows those of us who are Gentiles that we better honor the Jew because there's coming a day when God will. There's a fifth reason why we study it. It's because Daniel is a book of biblical prophecy. Now this book is very difficult to understand. And Daniel is not just a mere biography of a man or an interesting character in biblical history. This is an outline of God's future. The irony, I think, of all of this is that nowhere in the Old Testament is Daniel called a prophet, but this book is powerfully prophetic. In fact, Oberlin called Daniel the apocalypse of the Old Testament. 
Now, I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that you could not fully understand the book of Daniel till you understand the book of Revelation. And those of you that went through the book of Revelation, you're going to see a lot of wonderful things, and hopefully we'll be able to point them out to everybody that showed up in the book of Revelation. And you cannot fully understand the book of Revelation till you understand the book of Daniel. That's why Daniel's been called the Old Testament's counterpart to the New Testament's book of Revelation. Daniel is a book of critical biblical prophecy. In fact, it was Jesus who specifically called Daniel, Daniel the prophet. Daniel is a book that gives us a careful prophetic outline of Gentile powers. It is a book that gives us an outline of Gentile history and its conclusion. You'll learn amazing things as we journey through this book of Daniel about the revival of the Roman Empire. You'll see the Antichrist, when he's going to surface and what he's going to do. You'll see glimpses of the tribulation period. You'll see the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the millennium. It all shows up in Daniel. You may read through it and think there are some mysterious prophecies here, but I'll tell you this, as the events of our day begin to unfold, and as you watch what's happening in the world, you'll see the stage being set for the program of God that's described in the book of Daniel. And his predictions are so precise. They're just not abstract nonsense that he throws out. They're very specific predictions that he makes that liberals have attacked this book. And they've said there's no way Daniel could have known what's going on before these events occurred. They are so specific that liberal prosecutors have taken Daniel to court, but they haven't been able to silence him. Now, the first one who really started that mess was a liberal in the third century, pagan atheistic Neoplatonist whose name was Porphyry. He said it would have been impossible for Daniel to have known all the things that he talked about and predict the future so accurately. So he started to propagate the idea that Daniel must have been written by some other Daniel. It was a forgery, and it had to have been written about 400 years after that Daniel lived, somewhere around the year 170 B.C. However, what those liberals overlook is that Daniel was in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written about 300 years B.C. And that proved that Daniel made those predictions before they occurred. In this book are predictions of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. According to Josephus, when Alexander the Great was conquering the world, something that Daniel predicted he would do in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, that this little horn would rise up from Greece who would conquer the world. It is said by Josephus that he was shown a copy of the book of Daniel and Alexander the Great was so impressed that instead of destroying Jerusalem, he went in peaceably and worshipped at the temple and permitted Israel to obey the Old Testament law. This is a book that is a prediction of the Antichrist. He will enter into a peace treaty with Israel. And then three and a half years into that peace agreement, he'll break that treaty. But also in Daniel is the story of the true Christ. And then three and a half years after he breaks that treaty, Christ will come back and break him. Daniel makes specific predictions about the number of days that will be involved in actual judgment. The judgments at the end of the tribulation and the judgments prior to the millennium. He also gives Israel great hope by revealing there will be a wonderful time in which Israel will be in her land and she will receive the blessings of God. This is a wonderful book. But it is a book that Satan hates because it's a book that tells of Christ's first coming and it also tells that he's going to topple world powers that are satanically controlled and then it describes his second coming and then it describes the Antichrist and Christ is going to topple him. Satan hates this book. So in the history of interpreting the book of Daniel, liberals have come up with about nine different arguments to try to say this book is a fantasy. It cannot possibly be relied on. 
And the first argument is the Masoretic Text argument. Now, let me just explain what the Masoretic Text is. About three or four hundred years after Christ had gone up into heaven, there were a group of Hebrew scholars who said, we need to take the Hebrew Old Testament and put vowel points on it. The Hebrew language is a language of consonants. It does not have vowels. And so the Hebrew scholars decided to put vowel points so that you could pronounce the Hebrew words better. That's what they did. And when they wrote their translation, they classified Daniel as being one of the writings and not one of the books of the prophets. And so therefore, liberals said, you see, those Hebrew scholars didn't believe that Daniel was a true prophecy. They called it a writing. Well, I think Ernst Henstenberg summed it up well. The classification was based on the fact that Daniel was not classified as one who was a prophet. He was classified as one who prophesied. Daniel was a political leader. He wasn't classified as one of the Old Testament prophets per se, and that wasn't his office. He was an office of a great political leader who prophesied for the glory of God. So that argument falls by the wayside. Then another group stepped up and said, we don't agree that the book of Daniel is reliable because in the apocryphal writing book of Ecclesiasticus, which was written about 180 BC, there's no mention of Daniel whatsoever. Well, the easy refutation to that is the Apocrypha is not inspired by God and there's no mention of a lot of important characters in the Apocrypha, such as Ezra, who was a wonderful hero in Babylonian captivity. And then you have another argument. Daniel, spoken of by Ezekiel, could not possibly be the same Daniel who's living at the time of the Babylonian and the Medo-Persia captivity because he's mentioned by Ezekiel as being with Noah and Job. And those two live many years earlier than Daniel. Well, the obvious answer to that is Ezekiel is using three illustrations of godly men, two of them from past history, one of them from present history, and that argument proves nothing. There's a fourth argument that says Belshazzar, who shows up in chapter 5, is said to be the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's known that the actual son was Nabonidus, and Nabonidus was married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Nitrochris, and Nitrochris was the one who gave birth to Belshazzar. So they said because it said in Daniel 5 that he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he was actually the grandson. Well, the obvious answer to that is in Hebrew and in Aramaic language. There's no term for grandfather or grandpa. And oftentimes in the Bible, the grandfather is referred to as the father. For example, if you go back to Genesis chapter 28 and verse 13, God speaks to Jacob and he calls Abraham his father. But Abraham wasn't the father of Jacob. Isaac was the father of Jacob. This is just the way language was used in the Hebrew Chaldean time period. Then there is a fifth argument that Daniel is not a book of the Bible. Darius the Mede is emphasized as being in charge when history says it was Cyrus who was in charge. Now let me show you one verse of scripture that I think is interesting. Go to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, I want you to see one verse of scripture that easily refutes this argument. These are arguments that have been used to attack the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9.1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now I want you to notice that verb was made. It's Hophel's stem in Hebrew, which means a passive verb. Darius did not become king. He was given the permission to be king. It was Cyrus who appointed him king. So this does not in any way go against what was actually happening in history. The truth is Cyrus was on a military campaign in Europe and he appointed Darius in charge over this region of the world. A sixth argument is the term Chaldean. 
is used by Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 to refer to astrologers and the Chaldeans were an ethnic group of people. The answer to that is Daniel uses that term Chaldean to refer to an ethnic group of people named Chaldeans in Daniel chapter 5. There is a seventh argument, that is predictive prophecy is so accurate that there's no way he could have known these things. For example, there are many things that Daniel predicts that these people say he could not have known. For example, how did he know Alexander the Great was going to come into power and then be superseded by four generals, which he clearly predicts in this book? And so they say there's no way he could have known that. But the obvious refutation to this argument is there are several things in the book that haven't happened yet. So he doesn't predict everything, and everything that's listed still hasn't been fulfilled. There's an eighth argument, and that is the Aramaic language includes some Greek words that are musical instruments from Greek world, and there's no way they would have known that in the Babylonian culture. Well, history has proved that there were some Greeks who had influenced the Babylonian culture, and therefore those words could have made it into their culture. And the final argument is Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week is calculated as ending in 171 B.C. by liberals, but when you look carefully at Daniel 9, there are things there that just have not been fulfilled. Look, any argument a liberal throws at the book of Daniel is easily refuted. I've just exposed you to that because I want you to know this book is under attack because it is so precise. But there is something that you will see in this book of Daniel that's exciting. Many of the prophecies have already been fulfilled and they've been fulfilled literally. This book becomes the basis for believing that when God predicts something, it will happen literally just as he predicts it will. These prophecies are not just images found in a crystal ball. These prophecies in the book of Daniel are not some phony babbling clairvoyant who's just speaking uncontrollably out of his mind. These are inspired prophecies of God. And when God says this is going to happen, you'll see it'll happen just like he says. Now the second question is who wrote Daniel? The easy answer to that is Daniel was written by Daniel. That's the clear testimony of the book. And certainly that was the clear testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now the third question is when was Daniel written? That's not too hard to figure. Daniel opens in a story in chapter 1 and verse 1 where we read that it begins when Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem and took some captives hostage. Well that occurred in 605 BC. We also know from Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1 that he was still alive and prominent during Cyrus' reign in 536 B.C. So we conclude that Daniel wrote this book in the 6th century. Now if he were 16 or 17 years old when he was captured and hauled off into Babylon, he would have been 85 to 86 years old at the time of Cyrus' reign. Most believe that Daniel lived to about 530 B.C. That would have given him ample time after that period of time to write the book of Daniel, five or six years before he died, he could have recorded this wonderful book of Daniel. Now the fourth question is, in what language was the book of Daniel written? The book of Daniel is very unusual because it's written in two different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. Chapter 1 and chapters 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic. Daniel knew both languages. In fact, he was trained in the language of the Chaldeans. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 4. Now, one would logically ask, why would God allow two different languages to show up in one book? A careful study of the content tells us why. Although Daniel is one book, one single unit, it was written this way for good reason. Chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic because... 
There's information there that pertains to the Gentile nations, specifically the Babylonians and Persians, and God wanted them to read it. He wanted those nations to be able to understand exactly what he was predicting would happen to them. It is logical that those nations would have a portion in their language so they could read it and understand it. You see, that's what the Bible's designed to do. It's designed to be read and studied and carefully understood. That's why God gives information. Many Jewish people were bilingual. They spoke both Hebrew and Aramaic at this time. Chapter 1, chapters 8 to 12 contain information concerning Israel, her prophetic plan, Gentile nations as they relate to Israel. So that portion is written in Hebrew. Which brings us to the fifth question. How does the book of Daniel unfold? Well, the book of Daniel breaks down the following ways. You have historical matters concerning Daniel's lifetime in chapters 1 to 6. And then you have prophetic visions for Israel's future in chapters 7 to 12. Dr. McGee said, chapters 1 to 6, you have the historic night with prophetic light. And then he said, in chapters 7 to 12, you have the prophetic light in the historic night. Dr. John Wolverd, who's now with the Lord, former president of Dallas Seminary, outlined the book of Daniel this way. Daniel's personal background, chapter 1. The Times of the Gentiles, chapter 2 to 7. Gentile history as it relates to Israel, chapter 8 to 12. And then you have John Calvin, who said you have in chapters 1 to 6, Daniel recognized as God's prophet. In chapter 7 to 12, Daniel predicts what will happen to God's people. Which brings us to the final question we address today, and that is, what is the theme of Daniel? Now, to answer this question, we need to understand something about God's plan for Israel. God promised Israel, if you remain faithful to me, I will make you a nation among nations. I will bless you and make you a powerful nation. Israel did not remain faithful to God. So God said, I'm going to rise up nations, and I'm going to use them to carry out my judgments. I'm going to use them to back you into a corner. But does that mean God is done with Israel? Does that mean his program with Israel is over? Dr. Wolverd said the book of Daniel, like Esther, reveals God continues to work in his people Israel even in a time of her chastening. The book of Daniel shows that God would sovereignly use Gentile powers to carry out his sovereign purposes and his sovereign will. He would use Gentile powers to come up and dominate Israel. And then one day, he would take Israel back and he would allow her to be his people. He would put her in a city. He would put her in a temple where she could worship him free from sin. There can be no question that the key theme of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. The famed Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan said that theme was the persistent government of God in the world. And that's what Daniel is a story about. It's a story about the sovereign God of the Bible being put back on the throne where he belongs. But it's also clear that in the big picture of God's sovereignty, he never loses sight of the individual. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. In Daniel, Daniel presents that here is God. He's moving world powers He's moving Babylon, and he'll move Medo-Persia, and he'll move Greece, and he predicts to move Rome. He predicts that Rome will break up, then it'll be revived, and then there will be an Antichrist, and there will be an attack against Israel, and then there will be an ultimate victory and kingdom for Israel. He moves through the major mass of history in the program of God, but then he says, I'm also going to take interest of individuals, individuals who love me, individuals who are faithful to me, like Daniel. So he says to Daniel, I'll use you in my history. I'll use you, Daniel. I'll use you as I bring Babylon into the limelight and as I remove Babylon, bring the Medes and Persians into the limelight, I'll use you. 
I've got this massive plan being worked out with massive powers, but I still personally care for people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. There is not even a sparrow that falls to the ground without God's divine permission. In fact, the very hairs of our head are numbered. What that tells us is God is in control of the big world, and God is in control of your world. And when you read the news, you may begin to think it's bad, it's corrupt, we don't have a chance. Look, God is still on the throne. He is still sovereign, and he still uses people who prove to be faithful to him. He still cares for his own. So when you think about Daniel, we must be very close to the theme when we say a thesis statement for the book is this. God is sovereignly working out his plan in both Gentile and Jewish history, and he's moving his history to his prophetic conclusions. And as he works out his big plan in the program of time, he greatly honors and uses those individuals who remain faithful to him. You see, when you read through the book of Daniel, you get a big majestic picture of God, but you realize you're not just a number to God. You're not lost in the shuffle when you read through the book of Daniel. God knows you. He can greatly use you as an individual, even though he's controlling the big world. Donald Gray Barnhouse was once asked, if you knew you could preach one final sermon before you died, what would you preach? And Barnhouse said, I'd preach on the sovereignty of God. And there's no question that to the first six chapters, we learn that God is a sovereign God. He's a sovereign God whether things in your world right now are positive or negative. He's a sovereign God whether things in your life are favorable or unfavorable. In fact, when this story starts out, it looks bad. Israel is captured. Daniel and his friends are taken captive. But wait till you see what happens. And wait till you see what God promises. It ends with an encouragement. It ends with a blessing. God's people need to know this. What I find so interesting in Daniel is that there were heathen Gentile world leaders who came to the point where they realized the majesty and the sovereignty of God. That was true with the King Nebuchadnezzar. That was true with the Babylonian King Belshazzar. And it was also true with the Mede Darius. These heathen leaders came to realize God is a sovereign God. Now certainly if heathen powers can get that point, God's people ought to get it. Our God is in control. He's in control of the big world. And he's in control of your world. And if you purpose to live a righteous, pure, committed life, one that's dedicated to carefully understanding the Word of God and making application to your life, you can stand out like a Daniel, and God will use you in the big world. May we pray. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, the way that you get into a right relationship with God is through faith in Him. Right now, in the privacy of this moment, we would ask that you would pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner, I admit it. I thank you that Christ died for me, and right now I invite him into my life to be my Savior. Father, we're grateful for this powerful book of Daniel as we, Lord willing, next Sunday launch into its verses. We pray that you will stir our minds and hearts, elevate yourself, and I pray, God, as we purpose to live lives that are righteous and pure, that you will use us in the big scheme of things. We'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.